This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Ryan, how are you today? Um, I am good. Um, yeah, good. Just good. Okay. Well, uh, I'm especially good because you and I and Jacob Hall, our, uh, our fearless leader, had the opportunity recently to rank the James Bond actors, which was a very fun exercise. Um, I think the three of us are the biggest Bond fans on staff at Slash Film right now. And uh, I am not going to spoil where the rankings shook out or anything. I'm just going to link to the article in the show notes and encourage people to go check that out, especially if you have any interest whatsoever in any James Bond stuff. I think uh, it's a fun piece. And uh, what what was your experience um, working on that article, Ryan? Anything stand out to you? I think like more... Okay, I don't want to spoil much either, but I think what was interesting is how close we all sort of came down on Pierce Brosnan, which seemed, which like he's usually like a bit of a sticking point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of a love hate thing. And um, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. And and I think we were all closer than we were far apart, which was also kind of interesting. Like yeah. even though our ranking, like our individual ranking wouldn't have shaken out exactly the same. Like I think a lot of our like broad feelings on each of those actors were very like close. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's weird. Like, I don't outright dislike any single Bond actor. So it's all very, like, it's all very fascinating. Just yeah, like, that's the the fun thing about that article is because, like, you know, honestly, even though I like these movies, a lot of them are bad, I think. Um, and so you get to kind of set that aside when you're just talking about the actors who played the character and you're talking about characterization and, like, acting choices and little, you know, physicality and, like, um, decisions that they made to best represent the character or like put their own stamp on the character and kind of like the quality of the movie that they're in or the script that they're given or whatever is, is uh, completely secondary to the points that we're making. Yeah, here. Like so that's a- Roger Moore's whole thing. Like he charmed his way through some of the worst bond movies ever made. Like it's, it's, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting to look at just the actor and like trying to divorce that from, the larger movie. And I think that's my big thing with Brosnan and I won't spoil anything, but I, I wrote our blurb for the person that ranked lowest on our list. Mm-hmm. And so like that, but even looking at that, there's like an interesting way to look at that. I don't know. So I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a huge bond guy and it's always interesting to sort of, so I was happy to take part in it with you guys. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. So the big uh, news Ryan of the past several days has been the Taylor Swift eras tour uh, has arrived. The, the concert film has arrived in theaters um, 
interestingly, you pointed this out in the uh, in our um, Slack earlier today, and I noticed this when I was looking at Showtimes um, this past weekend when I was preparing to buy my ticket. Um, this movie is not available in theaters from Monday to Wednesday. It's only available Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I guess that's to sort of help create more of a um, concert atmosphere uh, and maybe even add a little bit of like a, a event eventization type of vibe to it where it really feels like you're, you know, going to a concert and experiencing that. It's not something you could just like pop in at noon on a Tuesday and, and check out. Um, so I wanted to mention that for people who may not have seen this yet, or maybe interested in seeing it. And like, if you hear us talking about it and you go check your AMC app and it's not there, uh, don't worry, check later, you know, this, this weekend or whatever, and it'll be. There. Yeah. 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 Cause even that was why I thought it was interesting when I was going over, cause I, I wrote a piece for us about uh, a couple pieces about its opening weekend, but like they, they didn't even on Friday, they didn't even have showtimes till 6 PM. Yeah. Um, which is like, and, and I think that was if I'm not mistaken, that was partially for the same reason of like Swift's team sort of trying to carefully choreograph this whole thing. So that, you know, that was very interesting. And, you know, I, I think the bigger thing with that is that the longer term prospects of this movie's box office, like you're taking three days off the calendar. That's no small thing. Um, yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that. And I guess we're, we're jumping right into it here, but like um, I, I, because of the higher ticket prices that she's charging, it's like, I think it's uh 1989 yep. and then 1313 for, um, for kids. Uh, do you think that that offsets the, the idea that these movies are, or that this movie is not going to be available three days a week? Yeah, I don't know. I, we're kind of in unprecedented territory here. Like I can't recall and I, and I looked like, I, I can't really recall a movie being like, we only play in these three days. Um, like, and I mean, the closest thing you would have to the premium ticket price is like an IMAX or something. Right. But like, mm -hmm. it's not IMAX. It's every single screen this thing's on. So, you know, I don't really know. This is like a genuinely unprecedented thing. So I, I it, it's really hard to say. Um, I mean, I think the big thing is that like, um, you know, the movie, had like a $20 million budget, like the movie part of it. And like, that's, and it, uh, we can, we're going to talk about it in a second. It's already well into profits based <laughs> on its opening week. So, I mean, this is all, and the Taylor Swift's era's tour is, is pegged. It's going to make billions. Like the, the tour itself is going to generate like over $2 billion in revenue. So like, this is all icing on an already well iced cake. <laughs> you know, it's not so, so like, so, I mean, anything we're talking about is, so I think there's an element of Taylor Swift being able to sort of dictate terms beyond even just the being like, no, we want this to feel like an event and we don't necessarily need this money. And it's more important to me for people to have this experience in a certain way than it is to be able to have people to go see it on a Tuesday afternoon by themselves. Right. Um. So I think that there is that element at play as well. So how did this thing do in its opening weekend, Ryan? It did exceedingly well and let, let me be there is i've already seen a couple of takes to the contrary and i'll get into why let me be super super clear up top this was an absolutely ridiculously big win and one that theaters kind of really needed um so taylor swift the Eras tour made 92.8 million dollars domestically from friday to Sunday on its opening weekend. Mind you, again, that was with Friday showtimes only beginning at 6 p.m. And Thursday showings weren't announced until like a day before. So it only yeah. made like 2.8 million in Thursday previews. So that so a lot of people 
analysts and I even wrote a piece for us that was like most people believed a hundred million dollar opening weekend was pretty much a lock. And even like the Sunday estimates were around like 97 million. But it, so there are people looking at like the 92 million is like they're trying to frame it as some sort of disappointment. And that's just it's just absurd <laughs> yeah. just for, for a concert movie. Any movie, it's one of the biggest opening weekends of the entire year, like of any kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, the the highest grossing concert movie domestically total before this was Justin Bieber's Never Say Never. And that movie made, I believe, 75 million domestically and 99 million worldwide. And that was its total run. Mm-hmm. So like we're in just wholly unprecedented territory here. And uh, Michael Jackson's This Is It is the highest grossing concert film ever like worldwide. And that was like 260 million total. This is going to blow by that. So you know, to, to call this anything other than like a resounding success would be, you know, like, and, and again, we've talked a lot about this. We've had mostly just horror movies kind of coming in and out during the fall season. And like, yeah, the nun two has been a hit, but that's relative. Um, you know, like saw X has been a hit, but that's relative. The exorcist believer is complicated, but like it's bringing people out, you know, like, but none of these are like blockbuster sized hits. Like, so theaters for the fall season, like this is very, very, very much helping theaters to get a blockbuster level hit during the fall season. That was seemingly not guaranteedly coming from anywhere else. So, mm-hmm. you know, that there's that element to consider as well, for sure. Yeah, man, I took a screenshot of my phone of the app. Um, when I was just looking up tickets for opening night, and it was actually, I think it was Saturday. It was the Saturday, the 14th, the the first Saturday. And there, there's a, a showing every like every 30 minutes, sometimes every 15 minutes for the entire day. Like I've never seen so many screenings for one movie uh, listed at my local theater before. It's kind of yeah, unreal. The last time I recall it was like Spider-Man No Way Home. And then I think before that, like Avengers Endgame probably like was the yeah. last time I saw. And again, they're also like the other thing not to be sort of lost in all of this is that this this is like a three hour concert movie. Like it's not a short movie. So you can yeah. only squeeze in so many screenings and you, you've got to have other movies playing too, right? But like, so the other thing that I had mentioned before and it's w- worth bears repeating again is that like, AMC theaters is distributing the movie directly. So they're benefiting the most from this, but it's not, it's not like exclusive to AMC. Other theaters are playing it, but they had to agree to carry it for at least four weeks. So this is, even if it falls off a cliff next weekend, let's say it drops like 70%. You're still talking about a movie that's going to make like 25, $30 million in its second weekend. Mm -hmm. And then you got two more weekends beyond that. I mean, this thing is going to be an absolutely monster hit. You know, I was I mean, wondering about that um, that rule that you mentioned about like you know they have to carry it for four weeks with them taking the movie out of theaters for three days a week. Does that time then get added onto the back end in the form of like another weekend? You know, does that like extend the deal in some way? No, or? I think it was just four weekends was the deal, right? Like like it was like a four. So I think like because I think that the the term sheet was probably pretty pretty clear when they got it like. You know, it's going to play, you know, you can only play it Thursday through Sunday. You're going to carry it for four weeks on those days. So I believe that that and also like, let's be clear, if the movie's still making money, most movies play in theaters for longer than four weeks. It's not saying they can only have it for four weeks. It's yeah, saying the that theaters they must, will keep it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If it's making money, they're still going to keep it. So like, the, you know, it's very possible this thing's in theaters for 
if not probable <laughs> that it's in theaters for longer. But um, yeah, I mean, I, so, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, uh, it also made it w- worth mentioning uh, 30.7 million overseas. Um, that number seemed a little low to me, like, cause it got a very robust international release. I was a little surprised it didn't do bigger business overseas. I, again, it was hard to sort of, there weren't a lot of comps for this, so it was really mm-hmm. hard to know, but, um, yeah. And yeah. I don't know enough about Taylor Swift as a, as a, um, a financial draw to know what her fandom looks like on a global scale. Like, does it, you know, I guess, does she have a huge international fan base that people were expecting to turn out in in a big way and then that's why the international number seems like um i don't know if disappointment may be too strong of a word considering yeah, disappointment like for 30 how... for 30.7 million dollars for a 20 million dollar movie like that, yeah yeah that's absolutely not disappointment but um you know but yeah so i mean you'd be looking at like if it continues this way like a 66 33 split between like 66 percent domestic like 33 percent international split or something thereabouts mm-hmm. you know which again like for some movies is totally fine like some movies just play heavily in north america and that's okay like they're yeah. you know so i don't know but i again like not really having any comparison for this it was tough to sort of look at like you know what movies might but yeah i mean i don't know it's clear that her split is a little more favorable to north america but she clear but you know she obviously has a sizable audience worldwide. So I don't know. We'll see how this all shakes out in the end. But I mean, you're looking at this thing's going to sail to 200 million. And and I would assume should be able to clear 300 million worldwide with relative ease. Yeah, we, uh, we talked a lot about like, you know, this was easily or is easily going to overtake Michael Jackson's This Is It as the highest grossing concert film worldwide. And I was curious if you had any other benchmarks that you think this might be able to either hit or surpass. Like, I know you don't like predicting things, but have you seen other, you know, other takes from, you know, other um, financial uh, box office analysts uh, out there? Um, anybody making predictions about how high this thing might go? I'm willing to like throw throw a little bit of, you know, like, prediction in there and that like so let's look at like the global like box office for 2023 your floor to get into the top 20 would be like insidious the red door which is 188 million worldwide so without question taylor swift is going to end up in like as one of the 20 highest grossing movies of the year globally if she can get to 275 million worldwide that puts you in the top 15 above creed 3 if she can get to 476 worldwide, that puts you top 10 above Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I would imagine she probably falls somewhere between the 10 and 15 mark, but for all intents and purposes, it seems easy enough to say that Taylor Swift will have one of the highest grossing movies of the year and a movie that is going to end up making a lot more than other movies that people thought were going to make a lot of money. So, <laughs> you know, that's pretty... Look, if you were to say at the beginning of the year that Taylor Swift is going to release a concert tour movie that's going to make more money than Creed 3, I mean, that's pretty incredible, you know, to even just say that, you know. So, so yeah, I mean, this is all good news for all involved, except maybe some bitter Hollywood studios who are not getting in on the money, but that's, you know, (laughs) whatever. Okay, so have you actually seen the movie yet, Ryan? No, no, I haven't. I've been quite busy and I'm still like, I'm trying to go see the creator tonight because I'm a little behind on some stuff. Um, but I, but I very much do. And like my, my girlfriend does not care for, uh, Taylor Swift. So this is something I would have to go do on my own. 
um, uh, which feels a little bit like, you know, one one ticket for Taylor Swift, please, like feels a little <laughs> bit whatever. But um, uh, but I am an unabashed like fan of like I love Taylor Swift, particularly the album Red. I am a gigantic fan of. Um, and uh, so I, I do intend to go see it and I do want to go see it, but I haven't had the chance yet. No. OK, well, you're going to be maybe contributing to uh, either the second or third weekend. Totals <laughs> or something. Very, very, very yeah. much. It will happen. I will. She will get some more of my money and that's fine by me. Cool. Uh, we have a few, actually, a bunch of articles about uh, how the film has been has performed and and sort of um, reasons that it's a box office juggernaut, all, all sorts of things. I'm going to link to all that in the show notes. Um, I guess before we move off of the Taylor Swift of it all right now, do you have any other uh, takeaways or things that you wanted to mention about this film at all, Ryan? Uh, n- no, but again, like, let's not. One last thing though is that Beyonce. Let's remember that Beyonce has a concert movie coming in December on uh, the post Thanksgiving window i believe um so there is another big concert movie coming from another big global artist in the next handful of weeks also distributed by amc theaters if that mm-hmm. goes well too we firmly have a bit of a disruption here in the uh the theatrical marketplace and one that i think could be good so something to watch out for okay cool uh all right let's look ahead to i guess this coming weekend which is, um, it sees the release of Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is um, one of my most anticipated movies of the year. Um, it's been sort of bandied about for a long time. It's been in development for a long time. I think it was supposed to come out at least a year ago, if not more than that, uh, but it was delayed by the pandemic and all sorts of things. So uh, it's finally coming out where I'm very, very excited to see what this movie is. Again, speaking of like three hour plus uh, long experiences at the, at the, at the movie theater, this is another one of those. Um, you wrote an article called can killers of the flower moon become Scorsese's first box office hit in a decade, which kind of like took me by surprise just because Scorsese is like a, uh, obviously a, a master, a legendary filmmaker in the American firmament. Um, and it just kind of, yeah, shocked me to see it written out like that, that he hasn't really had a, a big hit in more than 10 years, which is kind of nuts. Well, and also let's be clear that last hit was the Wolf of Wall Street and it was his biggest financial theatrical hit so it's interesting that it has been since then and even i because i typically do these little box office previews for us and i kind of look at the numbers and try to find an interesting angle to present it and like even that surprised me writing that out i'm like geez that's like hard that's hard to process like it was hard for me to process but it's true you know like so you know that's that's the situation we're in well, I guess you've got what the Irishman, uh, which was primarily a Netflix movie. It did get a theatrical release, but yeah. like uh, a and then limited you had, one. And then and you then, had Silence, which yeah. was look, you know, Scorsese's a master filmmaker, but that that one didn't pan out. That one was a hard no. sell, a hard sell. You know, that, that's another three hour um, movie, like a, a treatise on religion and and yeah. uh, sorrow As and it, grief and all kinds. I mean, yeah. Look, Scorsese. Even as a guy, like, I've been harsh on the Killers of the Flower Moon runtime, Scorsese should get to do what he wants for the most part. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah, let him make silence. Like, because over time, I think, like, over the long, long haul, it's worth it to say Scorsese made that movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For even for the studio that made it. So, like, but yeah, that one didn't just straight up didn't work out, you know, like financially. Um, So, how do you think Killers of the Flower Moon might do? Well, so, so. Um, yeah, let's go, let's, let's look at that. So like, so yeah, obviously we're looking at like the Irishman, which is this big, gigantically expensive movie that was made for Netflix because nobody else would make it, frankly, like, you know, and Netflix was willing to 
rolled the dice on what they thought was like a shoe in for best picture, probably. So Killers of the Flower Moon, similarly, was made by Apple after Paramount sort of was like, eh, Paramount got nervous. But what happened is Apple is more willing to sort of go like, hey, let's have robust theatrical releases, shall we? So Paramount is giving this thing a global theatrical rollout um, uh, this upcoming weekend. And uh, it is a three hour and 26 minute movie. Let's not dance around that. That's tough for your average moviegoer. Um, I've even had friends text me who have like their Alamo Drafthouse season pass or like their AMC A-list. And they've sent me screenshots and they said, is this right? Like they didn't think that the runtime was correct because they were <laughs> looking to buy tickets and they're like trying to plan out their day. And I'm like, that is correct. So anyway, point being, you're, you know, that's a bit of a hurdle to clear, but it is currently tracking for deadline has it at about 24 million for opening weekend. But the folks at Box Office Pro have it taking in a little more than that, anywhere between 29 and 38 million. I should mention Box Office Pro is generally pretty good at this stuff. So that would put it somewhere between The Departed and Shutter Island as potentially the second biggest opening of his career. So, yeah, not bad company there. No, not at all. The, the Departed went on to win Best Picture, and Shutter Island is in some ways maybe the most commercial movie he's ever made. Um, you know, and I, and I love Shutter Island. So, uh, I know he's maybe not as, I, if I recall Scorsese is maybe not as big of a fan of that movie as like other people mm-hmm. are, but anyway, um, so for, look, for, uh, before we talk about the budget for an R rated adult focused movie that is three and a half hours long, if that, if you get anywhere near 30 million on opening weekend against Taylor Swift in her second weekend, that's pretty damn good for my, you know, uh, take on it Mm -hmm. but the movie has a 200 million dollar budget you know that's the elephant in the room right but like apple made this movie they did not make it expecting for it and needing for it to be a pure theatrical hit paramount Mm -hmm. is only on board as a distributor so they're invested in whatever level of like money it can make at the box office and so a 30 to 40 million dollar opening weekend for them is pretty good because like this is the kind of movie where you're figuring word of mouth is going to be good because it's got an almost perfect rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's going to be an award season movie, so it's going to have longer legs like and that's not taking into account the overseas grosses. So Paramount's probably pretty happy. So mm-hmm. much like what Amazon did with Ben Affleck's air earlier this year, they're not expecting this to profit in theaters. They don't need it to profit in theaters. What they want is for it to make some money back and then bring more attention to the ultimate streaming release. And maybe because it's Scorsese, Apple will give it like a physical release down the road too. Who knows? But like there, you know, it's not like Disney releasing a $200 million movie. It's, it's a slightly different situation. And this is like a mixed model of distribution that we're starting to sort of see become more normal in the streaming era. So, you know, it's a little tough to apply, historical box office success or failure mm-hmm. metrics to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so that so that's, you know, because normally I'm hard on a movie that costs $200 million to make, and I'm not saying right. I'm going to be unfair to this one, but I'm saying that, like, the metrics of success or failure, like, if it only opened to, like, $8 million, that would be a problem. But, like, yeah. this, you know, so I don't know. It's it's tough. It, we're kind of in, like, new territory here, so it's a little tough to Yeah, and, and, like, for people who may just be listening to the show for the first couple times or something and haven't heard Ryan, like, lay out his mentality, his reasoning behind that, he's not, you know, Ryan doesn't have uh, investments in any of these studios or whatever. He only cares about the budget and, and the film's ultimate performance because 
it helps dictate what is made in the future. Um, and if if studios are if they if they take huge losses on this stuff, it will de incentivize them to um, you know to to continue to take uh, risks and, and chances and and uh, give auteur filmmakers the opportunities that you know that that we want to see them have so yeah like um, i'm an advocate of cinema i'm an advocate of the theatrical experience and like the reason i you're exactly thank you ben you're exactly right like the reason i harp on this stuff is because like look if this stuff doesn't work we don't get more of it like it is just that simple which is why i was like so rooting for the creator to work because it's like cool gareth edwards found a way to make a 200 million dollar movie for 80 million dollars i would like to see that work yeah <laughs> but like but like to be clear like air a movie i mentioned earlier this year which is probably also going to be in the award season conversation amazon you know it made 90 million worldwide against what i believe was a 70 million dollar budget if i'm remembering correctly so under traditional box office math that would not be a hit but i think amazon was thrilled with that because you had like a like an r-rated adult focused movie make 90 million dollars and that brought an awful lot of attention to the streaming release yeah and you're also talking about amazon and apple playing a different game than anyone else because they are like big tech companies that are trying to sell you other things that are minorly in the content business so yeah. you know it's just a different ballpark altogether so i'm curious to see how this one shakes out but that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it all cool all right let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back all right ryan we got uh we're, we're running a little long here so we were going to talk about this article uh called best buy is going to stop selling physical media and that's profoundly bad news for movie fans i'm just going to link to that again in the show notes so people can check it out uh, we don't really have time to get into this right now. It it bums me out. Um, Best Buy is not going to be selling movies, like uh, hard copies of movies in their store. And they're yeah. also not going to be doing stuff. They're not going to be selling them online either, which is the part that like, uh, you know, if you don't want to sell something physically, if you don't want to deal with shipping to your stores and putting them on shelves or whatever, like that's one thing. But like not fulfilling orders online is like a whole nother level here, which is, yeah, just kind of wild. Genuinely shocking, especially because um, Best Buy did like a lot of like, exclusive physical releases too so they're just getting out of that game entirely yeah yeah definitely like the end of an era type of situation here but uh bill bria wrote a great article about that so i want people to check that out um all right let's get into the rest of the news here uh there's a live action gargoyles show coming to disney plus uh ryan i i mean I, I saw your reaction to this when the news first broke in our slack and uh it was like an all caps like holy hell what is going on kind of thing so i assume you have um you know some sort of passionate feelings about the gargoyles tv show from back in the day i think i have so like i like i, I some people have like followed this show like feverishly like into adulthood and i like watched it when i was growing up i liked it cool dark series like i like the show for me it's more like i've heard so much and i'm sure you have too you've been doing this a long time of a new gargoyles thing is going to happen and like it's all been rumor hearsay blah 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 now it's like oh my god it's happening and it's not just happening it's happening from like two guys who get stuff done <laughs> it's happening yeah so tell me who those people are yeah so like so james wan uh, a name you've heard on this podcast many times uh the director of the conjuring the director of saw the director of insidious the producer of billions of dollars worth of hit horror movies is heading the series up through his Atomic Monster production company with uh, Gary Doberman uh, serving as writer, showrunner, and executive producer. Gary Doberman is a name you may not know as much, but he wrote it in it chapter two, wrote a bunch of the Conjuring Universe movies, directed Annabelle Goes Home, directed the Salem's Lot movie that was supposed to come out over a year ago, but is seemingly stuck in limbo at Warner Brothers. But so two guys who do nothing but print money um, are uh, and, and make horror movies people like a lot are bringing gargoyles 
to Disney Plus in live action form. Not, by the way, not just like a revival of the animated show. They're making a live action Gargoyle show. And this, by all rights, uh, uh, by all appearances, like it looks like these these guys are locked in and they're working on it. It looks like it's going. So, I yeah, mean, this, has had, this has been one of those projects that has been, yeah, like teased and announced and like different people have attached their name to it over the year and uh, over the years have, and have tried and like have expressed interest. I think Jordan Peele was mentioned at one yeah, point. Yeah, that's the big thing is Jordan Peele apparently at one point wanted to make a movie and Disney seemingly didn't want to. I, 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 that That might surprise people, but. Yeah, yeah, it looks like this is the direction they want to go. So, okay, so uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of those shows that came out like right in the in the tailwind of um, you know Batman the animated series and the X Men animated series and like the Spider Man animated series, like late '90s, I think. And I I kind of like remember watching a couple episodes of this, but it was like as I was aging out of watching cartoons for for a majority of the things that I was watching, so I didn't really ever get into this show in the same way that you know like you said it has this big devoted fandom um so i don't really have any takes on this but like do you are you excited about the prospect of a live action gargoyles show like do you you know with, based on your memories of this series does it seem like um you know that, that there's like a lot to mine there that that you think might be interesting for 2024 audiences or whatever absolutely i think uh, my only thing is it sounds tremendously expensive <laughs> that's oh, like my only okay. thing is like it's just like like i'm just like this sounds awesome I don't know how you're going to make this for anything less than a whole lot of commas, but like, um, you know, like good. I, I think, I mean, these two guys doing it. I mean that absolutely. I want to see that and like bring Keith David back. Like he'll sign up tomorrow if the SAG strike ends. So oh, like, was he the voice of the main gargoyle? Yeah, he was the voice of the main gargoyle. And he's talked a lot about like, he loves the show. So like, I'm sure that like, and James Wan's a guy that like, he only really takes stuff on that he really wants to do. And he's like pretty passionate about stuff. So I got to imagine like if he's agreeing to do this, it's cause like he sees something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I think this is like a really doing wrong. A Jordan Peele gargoyles movie would have been cool, but I also think this is like a very valid version of it. And for a guy who's always like, I'd rather see this as a movie. I think this makes a lot of sense as a show. I will okay. Say that. So I'm, I'm all for it. All right. Well, speaking of uh, shows and movies, the Halloween franchise seems to be heading to television, but also there's a cinematic universe planned. So it might be coming back to the movies, even though David Gordon Green's trilogy put a a conclusive end to uh, the Michael Myers slash the shape character. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, this is uh, this is one I have less certain feelings about whether or not this belongs on TV, but um. Yeah, the Halloween, this has been floating around the news cycle for a few weeks now. The Halloween franchise rights have kind of been, so like Blumhouse and Universal made a deal to make a trilogy of movies with David Gordon Green. That that was the extent of the contract. So, um, Contract fulfilled. Contract fulfilled. Uh, Trancus International, which is a, a, has controlled the rights to the franchise for a long time. Um, they were shopping the rights around. There were various bidders in the mix, including A24. Uh, Miramax, who has partnered on most of the Halloween movies, came came in and got the TV rights. So th- what looks like is going to happen here is they're going to make a Halloween TV show. Nobody's really attached to it yet. No plot details, no nothing. But the idea is that, like, since the people that control the TV and the movie rights are all under the same roof here, is they can sort of cohesively plan something. And the idea is that, like, that show could span and could end up giving birth to what they're calling, like, a, a Halloween universe of potential TV shows and movies here. So 
I, I don't, I don't have any idea. It, it, there's not a lot that's been said specifically. The problem is like the Screen Actors Guild strike is still going on, so you can't say who could or could not star in this yet. The writer's strike is over. There's no director's strike, so you could potentially attach writers and directors to this. But uh, it seems fair to say that this is probably going to be a reboot of some kind because Halloween Ends very definitively ended that iteration of the franchise. Like, Mm -hmm. there is no really going back to that well. And Jamie Lee Curtis has been very clear, like, that was it for me as Laurie Strode. I'm done. So I don't, I don't have any idea what this is going to look like. What, but it's got, it's, it's seemingly going to have to be a reboot of some kind. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the one thing that we we can pretty much say with confidence is that it's not going to have in a, be the type of show where Jamie Lee Curtis pops in as a supporting character or something like that, at least playing Laurie Strode. I mean, maybe they get cute with it and cast her as somebody else completely, which would be like, I don't know, even that I feel like would be maybe a bridge too far for her because this franchise has obviously meant a lot to her over the years and she seemed to... Um, like make peace with the idea of going out uh, with Halloween ends and like really having that be the true end of her involvement with that franchise. So um, yeah, I, I fully expect this to be a full reboot. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of what they used to talk about with the the plans for uh, the dark tower, where it was going to be a season of a TV show and then a movie and then another season yeah. of a show, then yeah. all of that kind of stuff, which like I think Mike Flanagan last I heard was, was involved in Mike Flanagan uh, is trying. Yeah. Mike yeah. Flanagan doing is, his thing with the dark tower. But, but, the, uh, but the difference there though, is you have what 10 Stephen King books to like, yeah, yes, we've had 13 Halloween movies, but a lot of those have either been like retreading the same territory or, pulling taffy (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. it's not really like source material that you can draw from in a meaningful way in in terms of a reboot mind Um, you i love halloween i love michael myers like i am i watched halloween resurrection the other night and i had myself a fine time but like (laughs) like you know and that is not a good movie but like i still so like but i this is just i'm very much like i you know and a lot of people have said like do like halloween three like make like an anthology. The only reason this is worth whatever Miramax paid is for Michael Myers. Like you don't, mm-hmm. they, maybe there's a component of that. That would be cool, but that's certainly not what they're anchoring this to. So not a gotcha. lot to say definitively, but when there's money to be made, things won't die. That's the main takeaway here. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think we know anything about like what streamer or network this is going to end up on because Miramax, I don't think is officially, I don't think yeah, Miramax like is like an independent deal. Yeah. yeah, they have like an independent production company, basically. So like they would have to make a deal with a bigger like someone that has an, uh, a network or a streaming outlet. Like like same thing. A24 is making that Crystal Lake Friday the 13th TV show. That's going to Peacock like they made a deal to make that happen. So something yeah. like that will happen here at some point. Cool. All right. So uh, the last thing we're going to talk about is Marvel Studios revamping the entire way that they're making television. This uh, report, I think, came out like right after we recorded Thursday's episode of the podcast. Um, and uh, this is a, a big one, Ryan. Like, I'm, I'm kind of surprised about this. So I'll try to run through the basic bullet points here. But again, I've linked to we have three articles about this in the show notes. So I encourage people to like check that out if you want like the full story but daredevil born again which is uh, a show that is going to be bringing back um, charlie cox as matt murdoch slash daredevil is going to be on disney plus this is a show that a lot of people are super excited about uh production was i think they shot like less than half of the show's 18 episodes just the fact that this was going to be a disney plus marvel show that had 18 episodes was a big deal when it was announced uh less than half of those uh shows had been shot by the time 
the writer strike uh, essentially forced the show to press pause. And Marvel made the extraordinary decision to basically reconsider the entire project. Like I think late last month, they fired the head writers of the show and they let go the directors that they had lined up to tackle the remaining episodes. And they're essentially going back to square one. I think the Hollywood reporter had this big breakdown of exactly what happened here. And um, I think the, my understanding is they, you know, there are several completed episodes like ready and, and, or if not fully ready, like quasi ready. And whatever this new iteration of this show is going to be is actually going to be able to use some scenes and even full episodes maybe um, from, you know, what's what currently exists, but they're basically going back to the drawing board and like completely revamping and retooling this show. And then not only that, their entire approach to making television. So uh, yeah, the idea that like these head writers were let go from this show or fired or whatever terminology you want to use um, was kind of shocking until you realize that like, this is kind of how Marvel has been doing things quietly behind the scenes. Like I did not realize until I read this report that uh, the creator of Moon Knight, Jeremy Slater, who was the head writer on that reportedly quit his own show. And the director of that series was given control of the show after Slater left Um, Kyle Bradstreet, who created secret invasion was writing the scripts for like a year after and until Marvel fired him and decided on a different direction for the show. So that's a big part of the reason why Secret Invasion was a, a huge failure for, for Marvel on a bunch of different levels. Um, a, a massive percentage of that show's crew was replaced as well, including like a bunch of crucial uh, crew positions. Um, Jessica Gao, who developed and, and co-wrote uh, she, uh, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, was like sidelined in a pretty major way in favor of that show's director. So like Marvel has been, you know, basically like flouting the uh, historical way that TV has traditionally been made in an effort to kind of conform television making to the Marvel movie way of, of making things, the Marvel method. Um, and it just kind of has not really been working, but now they're, they're basically pivoting. They're basically saying like, okay, we're, we're admitting failure here and we need TV executives who are dedicated to making television, who are going to focus on streaming and uh, not try to apply, you know, our film methods to this, um, which is just kind of, yeah, like Ryan, this, this whole thing uh, struck me in, in several different ways, but one of the biggest ways it, it kind of took me off guard was like, it's very rare for a major company like this to admit failure and, and they're not to be, um, you know, heads on a on a pike uh, as the like forebearer of of that uh, admittance of failure. You know what I mean? Like normally, it's like somebody gets booted from a, a a major studio head position or something, and like the person who comes in after is like, "Yeah, we're gonna clean things up around here and do things differently and whatever." And it's that's not really happening here. Like Marvel's TV executives, you know, Kevin Feige is still in charge. A lot of the the folks who are, you know, have been running Marvel for a long time are still around and in empowered in, in, in big ways. Uh, but they're just saying, okay, our methods haven't really been working here. So we're going to change things up. So I, I'm, I was kind of shocked to hear them ad- admit that, but uh, what was your reaction when you heard about all this behind the scenes drama? Uh, there's a lot to react to, as you said, but I think like, look, I'm not a lot of people like a lot of these shows. That's great. I, I think you probably by and large, less of it has worked 
and mass like for the masses then has worked. Um, clearly something wasn't working. And like Kevin Feige, like is, I think what's unique about Marvel studios is that Kevin Feige is like the guy, like everything runs through him. So like the guy to fire or pin this on might've been him and he's not going anywhere. So I think mm-hmm. like the, but also I think Feige's a guy like he's been pretty candid, like throughout his, like, you know, things work, they don't, he he'll kind of, you know, try to be wise and do what he can. So I think like, it was, I understand why they were trying to do what they were doing. Cause a lot of these shows were envisioned as like, you know, mini series and not like multi season things. And so they were thinking, okay, well we can just kind of plug this into our Marvel model. And yeah, that didn't work at all. Um, I just think what's funny now is like a lot of supporters like, yeah, now we're going to see shows that like could be multi-season TV shows and they're going to have showrunners and they're going to have like, yeah, so they're just going to go make TV like the way TV has been made for decades. And it's worked like, yeah, it's, it's funny that like they had to like learn some really expensive lessons to be like, I guess if we're making TV, we should just make TV. Um, yeah, they, they said, uh, yeah, I, I should mention like what you're elaborate on what you just mentioned. They they um they said that they're looking to get away from like the limited series type of vibe that they've had for a lot of their things so far. And they, they explicitly want to make multi-season arcs where people can actually like spend time with these characters over a long period of time and get to know them and hang out with them in that kind of, you know, like classic television vibe. Yeah. Right. So you're probably not going to see like as many bigger characters, like marquee characters. I would guess like, like she Hulk would still make sense. Cause you could do that like episodically, like, mm-hmm. whereas like something like Falcon and the winter soldier, I don't know that that would make as much sense for this newer model. They're going to pursue. Because yeah, I also like, wonder if that means that we're going to be in in we're going to see a new wave of Marvel hiring like different hero like smaller scale heroes brought into the fold because another reason that you know like major uh stars or whatever like yes maybe Tom Hiddleston is interested in playing Loki until the day he dies but maybe some of these other stars aren't like I've I've heard Brie Larson you know say like she's not thrilled about the idea of playing Captain Marvel for the rest of her life. So, um, you know, that seems to me like if that mentality extends to several other people under the Marvel Studios banner, like several other major actors, that we're not going to see like multi-year, multi-season shows starring some of the biggest actors in the world. So Marvel is probably going to have to get a little creative with what they're trying to do on the TV side of things by, you know, bringing people up instead of, instead of um you know grabbing people from the movie world world and throwing them onto a a multi-season show you know yeah yeah it's but i mean i also almost like for sure like at this point you're looking at like chris hemsworth has got to be the elder statesman now as thor he can't possibly be doing this much longer and you know so yeah you need to sort of get newer blood in there and if you have like a, a hero like wonder man for example or someone like that that starts on TV gets popular there. You maybe bring them over. It might be a new way for them to develop heroes that could, you know, potentially be around for a while. I don't know, but we'll, we'll see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it makes more sense. You know, TV, like TV is not movies. Movies are not TV. They can't really be interchangeable. And one of my biggest gripes that everyone on this podcast is tired of hearing, like, I don't want to watch a six hour movie on streaming. I just don't like, you know, so like, I'm good. Make a TV show. Like, great i i'm I'm okay with that so like you know agents of shield ran for seven seasons say what you will about that show you don't have to love it but like it worked as a tv show so Mm -hmm. you can can do that all right well yeah uh unless you have any other like big takeaways from from the revamp here i think that's gonna do it for us any other uh observations uh i mean i look i'm very 
hopeful for Daredevil Born Again. Um, so like, well, I just hope that whatever goes on there, that that works out. Cause like, I love Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock and, and Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin, I think are two of the best comic book castings like ever. So, you know, I'd hate yeah. to see that wasted uh, in sort of bringing them back in such a significant way. So fingers crossed they get it worked out. Yeah, one of the things from this report said that uh, the current, or, or I guess the the now defunct edition of uh, Daredevil: Born Again was more of a legal procedural that where Daredevil didn't even appear in costume until episode four. So the fact that Marvel is completely throwing that out and and essentially starting from scratch indicates to me that they want more daredevil in their actual daredevil show so i i think uh we don't really know exactly what's going on behind the scenes there or what the new shape for the show is going to look like but i think it's probably a, a safe guess to bet that we're going to see daredevil a lot sooner in whatever finalized incarnation actually arrives on disney plus whenever that happens so um Okay, yeah, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the, the Slash Film Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.